0: The Old Pilot's plain Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 19 I left you at the end of my FA-18 conversion course as we reformed No. 77, Royal Australian Air Force Squadron with their brand new Hornets. So far our one and only aircraft, A21-5, was being shared around and everyone wanted a piece of it, either to fly or to learn how to fix it. The squadron execs were pretty busy dealing with the job of getting the new squadron personnel squared away so the rest of us got more than our share of flying. There wasn't much we could do with a single jet but I was happy to just play with a multi-million dollar toy and get used to my new home. Willie, as RAAF Base Williamtown was usually referred to, was about 80 miles north of Sydney, the home of the nearest other RAAF Base, Richmond, which housed various transport units, mainly Hooks. I spent a trip visiting our other diversions, which were small municipal airports, several of which were unmanned. What was commonplace for someone who grew up flying in Australia, the United States, or perhaps Canada, was an anathema for me. The United Kingdom has many airfields, but only the smallest, which would be unsuitable for fighter jets anyway, didn't have at least a tower to chat to. Now I had to learn to make position and intention broadcasts on a common frequency, with the only reply coming from some bug smasher that might be in the pattern. At night I also had to remember to turn the runway lights on, achieved with a sequence of radio blips on a particular frequency, and then hit the clock so I'd know when they would turn out again. When I asked what fire cover these places had, the Aussies replied, what part of unmanned don't you understand? In other words, should one of my untamed carrier landings end in flames, I would have to hope that somebody noticed and then wait for the local fire brigade to turn out. We'd been going for nearly a month when the second aircraft, A-21-2, arrived. Now we had someone to play with. It was like a lonely dog getting a friend and we would fly around each other in ever-decreasing circles, having fun. Apart from a few bombing sorties, we did an entire month of 1v1 intercepts in combat. Great fun. The bombing was also fun, since we were ringing the changes a bit and trying all sorts of deliveries from level laydown attacks at low-level to 45-degree dive bombing both day and night. I seem to recall that those high-level night dive attacks provided a moderately high level of adrenaline, but not as much as strafe. I've neglected to mention that the Hornet's M61A1 Vulcan cannon could be used for more than just drilling holes in a Hessian banner. It could be fired at the ground. Of course, there was always a question in my mind as to the wisdom of getting a very expensive fighter aircraft very close to the enemy where you risked being brought down by a kid with four weeks training and a cheap old ak 47 the cost benefits didn't seem to balance, but that wasn't really the point. It wasn't like the A 10's mighty cannon that reached out over miles and turned people into stone for just glancing at it. The Hornet had a capable enough gun, so we needed to learn how to use it. We strafed from low angle dives, just 10 or 15 degrees, and the radar gave the range countdown in the gun sight, so we knew when to fire. Like anyone who knows how to shoot well, the trick was to get into a groove and fly the aircraft very smoothly as rough polling sprayed the rounds far and wide. All that was then required was to get into range, fire a good burst and recover! This, I guess, is the time to make a confession. You had to get very close, about a thousand feet, to get a meaningful score, and at 400 knots or so, the ground came up pretty quick. Once the burst was done, it needed a 4 or 5G pull to get away and recover from the dive without getting a low height warning from the range safety officer, and even so, it was quite likely that the jet wash would kick up sand from around the target. Go below 50 feet and you got yourself a warning. Do it twice and you were sent home. The difference between a clean firing burst and frightening yourself was remarkably small. What's more, there was always the risk of ricochet damage. Behind the target, with its acoustic scoring device, was a sandbank to contain the rounds, but there was always the chance our 20mm shells would bounce off one fired previously and leap back into the air for us to collect as we flew over the target. This was one of the reasons we flew right-hand patterns, since the Vulcan cannon rounds tend to spin off to the left. Those who excelled at strafe seemed fearless and earned my admiration. Three months went by, and suddenly the squadron seemed awash with jets. Well, another three or four arrived, and I got to participate in my first exercise, Cope Rasher. The name reflected the fact that there were some F-111s taking part, which the Australians like to call the pig. We made up some packages from a mix of Hornets, some of the last Mirages, a few Mackie jet trainers, a small herd of pigs, and then ran at each other. What the score was I can't remember, but this was followed by some 4v4 combat, all in the aid of a deployment by our sister squadron, Number 3 Squadron, who were leading a bunch of Hornets taking part in a major multination exercise in the Philippines, Cope Thunder. This would be the first time the Aussies had shown off their new fighters, so a select number of the most experienced pilots were chosen, mainly from 3 Squadron. My boss explained that although I couldn't go all the way with the deployment, I was going to take a spare aircraft up as far as Darwin on the north coast in case one of the others broke on the way. I duly manned up and joined a formation making up the fourth aircraft and we set off to the northwest towards our midway refuelling stop in a mining town called Mount Isa. The town was, to quote a common colloquialism, beyond the black stump, the back of Burke. Or in the gaffer, all refer to somewhere in the vast outback beyond the remote town of Burke, where wildfires leave blackened stumps of trees, and in the great Australian effol The town of Burke is actually named after Fort Burke itself, named for Sir Richard Burke, a governor in the mid eighteen hundreds, and not as I thought after Burke of Birkenwill's fame. This pair of European explorers led an expedition to find an inland route between South Australia and the North Coast. They died malnourished and exhausted despite being nurtured by the Cooper Creek Aborigines when Burke foolishly shot his pistol at one of them. The Aborigines left them to their own devices and within a month they had both perished. Mount Isa was founded by a lone prospector, John Miles, who came across an outcrop of yellow-black rocks that turned out to have high levels of lead, silver, copper and zinc. He staked his claim in what turned out to be one of the world's most productive single mines in history. As far as we were concerned, the town had a suitable airfield to land at and refuel. There were, however, a couple of potential hiccups. The ramp could only accommodate four Hornets at a time, and the place was scorchingly hot. This meant we had a window to cycle our aircraft through before the next four-ship would arrive, and that it was going to be a trifle uncomfortable, heat-wise. Daytime temperatures regularly got above 40 degrees centigrade, 104 Fahrenheit, and this day was no exception. After negotiating the massive chimneys, one of which rose to a thousand feet, about a mile off the centre line, in the claggy red dust that rose from the mine, we played follow my leader as we backtracked to the entrance of the apron. I lifted the big canopy to let my sweat dry a bit and was met by a wall of heat straight out of Dante's Inferno. I slammed it back down again so I could enjoy what little advantage the air conditioning could provide for a few seconds more as we squeezed onto the little patch of concrete. Once it became inevitable, I opened up and climbed out across the wing and onto the tank so I could safely jump down. The aircraft was already so hot that I had to put my gloves back on so I could touch it. There was nobody available to turn us round, so we did it ourselves, opening panels and checking quantities and pressures, but all was good as the aircraft had been well prepped at willy and there was no need for replenishments apart from fuel. While I waited for the Bowser, I checked the maintenance fault codes from the reader and filled out the turnaround paperwork. The refueler arrived, connected his hose and static lead, and I confirmed the delivery pressure. By now my flight suit was dark green soaked with sweat as I watched the fuel come aboard when I heard the distinctive clack of high heels behind me. I turned to see a vision of beauty as a young flight attendant in a crisp starched blouse and miniskirt which emphasised her swaying hips emerged like a mirage through the heat haze rising from the concrete. She had apparently stepped out of a nearby executive jet and on her upheld hand was a small shining tray holding a tall, ice-filled glass of Coca-Cola, condensation misting the sides. She grinned and said, "Geez, mate, you look a little warm.' The flight on to Darwin went smoothly and an hour after landing we were in the mess bar downing a cold tinny. At that time, the airfield beside the capital of the Northern Territories was a shared military and civil base, which housed No. 75 Squadron, the last remaining Mirage unit. Darwin had a great history that started with the Dutch in the 1600s, continued with the British when HMS Beagle visited, and was named for the renowned naturalist Charles Darwin. It suffered many attacks from the Japanese, which commenced when 188 Japanese warplanes from the same fleet that had previously bombed Pearl Harbour swept over the town in two waves. They unloaded more ordnance than had been dropped on the American base, resulting in by far the most serious level of damage on Australia at that time of the war. After pinching a few components from my aircraft, the rest of the chaps departed north towards Indonesia whilst I took my lone Hornet to the south. My boss had suggested that I take the opportunity to return to Willie the long way round, a sort of circumnavigation of Australia. He got one of the Australian pilots to write me a handful of flight plans, not something we ever did in the UK, Give me a quick briefing and I was left to my own devices. I plan to take a look at Uluru, which some of you may know as Ayers Rock, and then drop into Alice Springs to refuel. Then I'd head west to Pierce Air Force Base, near Perth in Western Australia, where I could catch up with my father over the weekend, before coming home across the Great Australian Bight into RAAF Base Edinburgh, near Adelaide, and then a final hop back to Willy. Heading down to the enormous sandstone inselberg. I crossed some of the most remarkable and beautiful parts of Australia, within the Kakadu National Park, a vast protected area of diverse ecosystems, including extensive areas of savannah woodlands, open forest, floodplains, mangroves, tidal mudflats, coastal areas and monsoon forests. Even from my height, I could see the enormous Arnhem Land Plateau, from which its ancient sea cliffs gave birth to huge waterfalls. This magic land petered out into the now familiar red desert of the interior as I let down towards the ancient rock that is Uluru. This island mountain is a monolith that, like an iceberg, is larger beneath the surface than above. With its origin in the Neo-Proterozoic period, it is half a billion years old and originally laid down as horizontal layers of sand. It was pushed into a vertical position during a later period of geologic upheaval and mountain building. I cruised around taking photos and carefully avoiding the sightseeing aircraft that were carrying other tourists because I numbered myself amongst them. The massive edifice looked as impressive as I had hoped, but before long I had to head off to Alice Springs as my fuel was getting a bit low. Sequencing the inertial waypoints to the one I'd set up at my destination, I climbed and headed off to the northeast for the 200-mile transit. As I approached, I descended to a couple of thousand feet as I angled towards the airfield looking for the runway when I glanced down at my moving map. On it I could see a small red circle just off my intended track that indicated some kind of sensitive area to be avoided. I had no idea what it might be as nobody had bothered to mention it when we were planning and anyway I was going to miss it. I guess everyone assumed that I had somehow heard of the one and only permanent piece of prohibited airspace in the entire continent of Australia. I'd been peering ahead looking for the airfield, but as I went past I dropped my wing to see if I could spot whatever this little red circle protected. In the UK, there were an absolute myriad of such avoidance areas, and try as we might, we often accidentally busted them. So when the wing moved aside to reveal a cluster of white golf balls, not as I expected a few miles off to one side, but directly underneath me, I only felt a little pang of guilt when I realised the inertial navigation system must have drifted off a few miles i was blithely ignorant of the place they called pine gap or more properly the joint defense space research facility known by the u.s national security agency as rainfall part of their five eyes secret echelon surveillance program there is little doubt that the place is an intelligence gathering facility partly run by the cia and, as I was about to learn, it is shrouded in secrecy. Alice was on runway 12, so I angled my track to arrive on a right-hand initial for a military-style run and break into the circuit. Within a few minutes, I had broken into Alice's pattern at 450 knots, doing it the proper way, with a climbing 4G turn with air brakes to kill the speed and arrive at the end of the downwind leg at circuit height and approach speed. I spun my aircraft up into a tight finals turn and with gear and flaps configured, settled it down onto the runway. Taxiing in with my elbows on the canopy rails, feeling on top of the world, I had no idea that within a few short hours my aircraft would have been impounded and I would be having a very long chat with men in dark suits who didn't seem to be enjoying my sense of humor. But that, as they say, is a story for another day. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you're enjoying listening to Plane Tales and would like to help us out, how about leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice? We'd be very grateful. And thanks very much for listening.